0: This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Denise Dupra, a general internist involved in primary care at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and an associate director of education for the Center for Individualized Medicine in Rochester. Every person is composed of a series of genes that determine everything from the color of our hair and our eyes to how our bodies respond to and metabolize medications and our susceptibility to cancer and other diseases. Over the next several weeks, we're going to devote a mini series of Mayo Clinic talks to the incredible field of genes in your health. We'll discuss concepts in genetics that are essential to providing the best care of your patients. Topics will include the microbiome, cancer genetics, artificial intelligence, pharmacogenomics, direct-to-consumer testing, the ethical principles of genetic testing, and how you can apply this information to individualize and optimize patient care in your own practice. Today, I'm very pleased that we are joined by two guests. Dr. Bradley Erickson, a professor of radiology, who has developed AI applications for predicting molecular markers in tumors based on radiologic imaging. And Dr. Chris Akre, who's an assistant professor of medicine and a consultant in general internal medicine, who has been developing educational programs to help our learners for tomorrow learn how to apply AI to both clinical applications as well as research. Thank you both for joining me today as our guests. Today's topic, predicting the future. What role is artificial intelligence playing today? And what can we expect in the future? And I guess I'd like to start by asking you, Chris, what is AI? Are we talking about sort of Star Wars and video games or the old thinking about we just walk up to the Megatron and we get our health picture of ourselves? So that's artificial intelligence. And I, as an internist, will be soon out of a job because some machine will do my job.
1: I wish it was that uh, that advanced. I guess when I think of AI, I think of these algorithms that are able to uh, adapt themselves based on new information without being explicitly programmed. That's kind of a nice way to think about it in a nutshell. I think as far as uh, these different algorithms taking our job, I think it's probably much more likely to be able to help us up in the future rather than completely replace what we're able to do.
0: Now, Brad, I've seen some of the talks you've given. and I think you gave an absolutely eloquent discussion about what happened in radiology where somebody boldly predicted that a radiology would soon be a dead profession because in fact, the computers would take over your job. So I'd invite you to talk a little bit as well about AI in particularly in your field of radiology and what's happened to AI and what it's done for your field. Yeah, you know, AI
2: is a really broad field and encompasses a lot of things. And what has really happened in the last five plus years Is a specific form of AI called deep learning and in particular the increase in computational capabilities has allowed us to figure out what's present in imagery is probably the biggest advance that's why for instance self-driving cars are really able to drive well it's not because we had better algorithms saying you know turn 32 degrees when you see this curvature in the road it actually is that they collected hundreds of thousands of hours of people just driving cars and the computer learned from it. So the analogy was, gee, if we can figure out what's present in all those images, that's what a radiologist does, so we can use computers to figure out what's present in images. The problem is that they have a very narrow task. In the case of driving, it's, you know, don't kill the passengers. And, you know, in in other tasks, it's, is there a dog or a cat in the photo? And radiology is much more complex than that. Most of medicine is much more complex than that. In fact, I heard somebody say, you know, if your doctor can be replaced by a computer, they probably should be replaced by a computer, right? And so, you know, that, that reflects the fact that medicine is much more complex than a unidimensional problem that AI can do very well at. The other thing is that when you heard me talk about these AI applications, I always use the word learning. And so AI is not intelligent the way that we think about intelligence, right? It is not a problem solver, it's a really good pattern matcher. And so if you have a component of medicine where you are doing pattern matching on potentially really complex patterns, this form of AI called deep learning probably can impact that part of medicine. But the integration of the information is still something that computers don't do that well and it's something that we humans excel at. So, you know, with that as a bit of a preface, there are some pieces of radiology that I think will be impacted. Screening is one example, right? So mammography, you know, you're really not looking for a broken bone in a mammogram, or if you are, you probably need to be replaced, right? You know, similarly, there's a lot of quantitative information that is just really difficult to get at today. So like one application we developed was for body composition, the amount of fat that you have that's visceral fat, subcutaneous fat, and muscle are the, the main components. Having a human measure it is really challenging, but we have an AI that can do it in a fraction of a second. And I think that that sort of information probably can be really valuable, particularly for predictives, but potentially also for diagnosis. You know, the volume of the kidney is small you're at risk for kidney injury or chronic kidney disease or or something like that. That's where I think it probably is going to impact us in the relatively nearer future.
0: Great. So Chris, with that as a background, what kinds of things are you teaching our learners? Because this is all foreign concept to me. I mean, I've been at this job for a while and you're a lot younger than I am. And so how do we prepare the people who are gonna take care of me when I get old in three years, to be able to take this new technology, this new method of learning, and use this tool to be better doctors.
1: Denise, you're exactly right. It is brand new. And with that, part of it is trying to teach people what it is, what it can do, and what it probably can't do. Because knowing, uh, knowing any sort of new technologies, limitations is really important to be able to use that technology effectively. And in some realms, such as uh, what Dr. Erickson experiences with radiology, it's much more advanced than others with specific tasks like natural language processing. And so understanding the capabilities in each of those different domains is very important to understand about how you can potentially apply it towards your specific specialty or disease of interest. Using that as the background, that's uh, one of the things we concentrate on first. Pretty much you can't pick up a a journal nowadays without uh, seeing some sort of AI study in there. And uh, this may be for how to manage diabetic retinopathy uh, for, your, for your general interest, or something that, uh, that applies one of these new techniques towards something having to do with primary care or general medicine, such as uh, I practice. And being able to kind of uh, take a look at what those studies are saying, understand about how they're applying these technologies, and if it may even be useful, or if it may be prone to some sort of bias, which is incredibly important nowadays. Those are the types of things we're trying to teach people without trying to make them experts in machine learning.
0: It reminds me of the days when I thought I was actually going to be a computer science major, and they started talking about Fortran as a language or COBOL as a language. You're going to need the other language of AI to be able to decipher what they're saying and how I'm going to use that information. I remember trying to learn how to read the methods section of a paper, of a standard biomedical science paper. I mean, is that what you're talking about with regards to looking at this literature as it becomes available?
1: That's exactly right. Uh, we definitely don't want to have to uh, have someone be able to uh, pick up Python or R or any one of these different languages to actually be able to program the artificial intelligence. But it, it would be great from a learner standpoint or from a, a consumer research, whether it's research applications or clinical applications, if you're able to, just like we learned in medical school and residency, pick up a paper, be able to look or review the methods and see is this something that I can believe What uh, what is the paper is telling me? And again, more importantly, what are the potential sources of bias that can sometimes be quite embarrassing when they get put into practice if those aren't caught because they can lead to uh, some uh, results that just don't do what they're intended.
0: As you mentioned, in particular, Brad, as you mentioned, radiology has really sort of taken a lead with pattern recognition and some of the things you're doing. Can you comment on some of the things that are happening in your field right now with the use of AI in terms of biomarkers and tumors? And what are you doing right now, either in the lab or applying it actually to the clinical care of patients?
2: Yeah, so in the case of tumors, we and other groups have gotten reasonable results at predicting molecular markers in cancer's We've worked on glioblastomas and and diffuse gliomas for predicting things like IDH1P19q chromosomal deletion and MGMT methylation. In the case of lung cancers, others have done things like EGFR amplification. And there's another project going on looking at colon cancer and KRAS. And so there are a number of cases now where Radiologic images, just routine stuff, can predict molecular markers with pretty good accuracy, like in the ninety plus percent range. So I'm a neuroradiologist, and if somebody would have told me five years ago that we could predict MGMT methylation or IDH mutation with that sort of accuracy, I would have called BS on them. Right? I mean, there's there's just no way. And in fact, there are publications that have shown that. Particularly for MGMT methylation, there are really not any visible features. one p 19 q is about the best humans can do in the mid-70s for predicting that. The deep learning algorithms are finding something in the texture there. And to me, that's the interesting thing is there's some information there that we are not understanding yet. And to me, that's always the opportunity for discovery, right? That there is something there. And, you know, we're seeing it across several different modalities. And similarly, in the case of pathology, you know, people are starting to show that just from H and E stains, they can find molecular markers. And think of the possibilities, right? Some of the molecular tests they send out for takes weeks to get back. BRCA1 is one that the woman is waiting weeks to find out what's the story on that breast cancer? How do I get treated? If you could figure it out from H and E, that's faster, cheaper, and all around better and and much more available across the world, that has a tremendous impact on what we can do with healthcare. So I think that we're starting to see those applications. The actual FDA cleared applications are actually not so much in that space. They are more in the space of emergency radiology. So things like, can you find an intracranial bleed? Can you find a pulmonary embolism? Can you find a fracture? It's much more simplistic, but it's a little bit more about detection because the human can say, yeah, you got it right or you got it wrong. And so it's more about that screening sort of function, the prediction of molecular markers, until we understand how the computer is predicting it, there's a little bit more risk. And so the FDA clearance is a much bigger hurdle to get over to say, yeah, this is MGMT methylated. I don't know how it came up with that, but it said it, therefore it must be true, right? That's a big problem for AI is that if we don't understand how it comes to a prediction, there's gonna be a lot of concern about how reliable that is. And, and you get into the whole diversity challenges that Chris already mentioned.
0: So Chris, for those of us who are relatively naive about the power of AI, if I understand what Brad is saying, One of the things the future might hold is that person of mine who comes in and we find a lung nodule, we would potentially have a radiologic imaging study, which could predict its marker in this lung cancer tumor that we would be able to use to guide therapy for the tumor without ever getting the tissue-proven biopsy. Or is that really too far-fetched? Because you know, Good old fashioned tissue is the issue, was the comment that I learned all the time. But I hear there may be some promise when, when I think about Brad's world of neuroradiology with unresectable or I don't really want somebody carving on my brain doc. It's a really exciting potential field. Maybe I'm jumping too far. I understand the FDA approval, but it sounds like that's maybe a potentially out on the horizon somewhere.
1: Potentially. The main hurdle there might be the comfort with just relying on one of these algorithms, uh, particularly as Dr. Erickson had mentioned about the inability to know for certain or be able to explain how it came to uh, some of these decisions there. So you have to be uh, reliable to like a 99.9% accuracy before committing someone to a specific treatment for, let's say, uh, lung cancer with, uh, without having a tissue sample. Uh, th- I guess uh, on the more near term, what, what I could potentially foresee is Let's say if you have a a lung nodule that you're going to get a sampling of uh, anyways. It may help you better direct what types of genetic tests to order and potentially help with cost of care there by directing, okay, based on the way this lung nodule looks, it has a 80, 90% probability to have these uh, mutations, and therefore you're only uh, specifically setting up for those mutations rather than maybe 20 mutations. I see something like that as maybe more possible on the near term whereas something like you had uh, described may maybe more long-term and depending on our comfort with tech, the, the uh, technology.
0: That makes perfect sense. So I do think there's what are we doing now and where might we be in the future? And I think that these fields are moving so fast and what we're doing with AI now both in radiology and other fields, will continually change. Chris, in terms of the area that you're working in, which I know may be not as driven by acute application of AI, what are the things you're most familiar with with regard to clinical application of AI information or specific less non-radiologic driven AI apps?
1: Yeah, I think if you talk to almost any clinician out there who has to uh, dig through a lot of records on a daily basis, so that's essentially my world, and one of the uh, things I'm very excited about is some of the more recent advances with uh, natural language processing and how best to use that type of th- deep learning technology to supplement what we do as general internists and primary care clinicians, whether it's information retrieval, be, uh, being able to go through, dig through the chart, find the exact little bit of information without having to spend 15, 20 minutes digging through a stack of records. We know that a lot of our records that we can't exchange electronically, we get those nice scanned or uh, faxes and being able to uh, not have to dig through a hundred pages of scanned paper by using optical character recognition and search, things like that will, uh, on the more near-term that can help our just daily lives, reduce, uh, reduce our over, overall workload. Those are the things I'm really excited about for the more near-term applications of these technologies, just to make our lives easier.
0: You mean efficiencies of our job? Yes.
1: And a lot of the things that uh, uh, go and cause burnout.
0: So Brad, from a futuristic look at radiology, the tumor markers are fascinating. And I know that's sort of closest perhaps to what you're doing. What else do you see as you look broadly across radiology as being on the horizon?
2: The radiology journals today are just replete with AI applications. I think there is no organ system that has not been impacted by AI, whether it's reading musculoskeletal MRI to plane films with like one part of my group predicts the risk of Hip dislocation after THA based on the immediate post op film. I mean, there are just all sorts of applications. Obviously, COVID has been a huge thing. I challenge anybody in the audience to come up with an organ system or tissue that has not had radiology and AI worked on. It, It is just all over the place. The big challenge is that it is a very narrow task. Like I mentioned, you know, THA dislocation, it doesn't find a carcinoma of the skin, it doesn't find a sarcoma in the bones, it doesn't find a fracture in the bones, right? All all those other things that a human would see. So that is the biggest challenge. And and so you, you talked about workflow and efficiency. A big challenge is how do you piece all of these AI components together? And so that's where something called process automation comes in. We need to have computers that essentially synthesize all of these AIs that are very narrow verticals into one big summary and say, okay, you know, this one had a hit, this one had a hit, and I'm going to pre-compose parts of a report saying this is the relevant thing for us to find. I think that's going to be the challenge because we can't look at everything. It's just like, you know, the medical records. Quite honestly, it's not just internists that have that problem with, for instance, MR safety. We have to know every device that's in a patient. How do you find every device that's in a patient unless you look through every record and in particular from the outside? Well, it's a major safety thing. And so we actually kind of like that have built NLP processors for all the outside records and inside records looking for specific terms like aneurysm clips or ear implants, all those sorts of things that can be destroyed and and be a health risk for the MRIs. There are a lot of those more practical applications that that we need today, and then over time, we'll start to synthesize more and more of these uh, diagnostic-type tools. But really, it's the workflow and efficiency piece that we need to make sure we address up front so that as we bring these more sophisticated tools into the practice, that we're helped rather than hurt by all this sophistication.
0: I think the one thing that's impressing me about our podcast today is that the AI umbrella is really a huge net and it's really far more complex than I initially thought of. I guess I'm thinking about the Maserati and I got to think about every car lot in town that's got every different kind of small little two door Volt to the big fancy Land Rover and everything else because it does encompass every aspect of what we do clinically. Now, you know, a number of years ago, there was a big hoo-ha about Watson, right? The IBM computer. And, and I guess the question is, was Watson artificial intelligence? I mean, I think we all thought that was Watson a human thinking being? And Chris, maybe I can ask you, was that just pattern recognition or was it thinking? I know Watson never held anyone's hand and I've done that with patients in the past, and that mattered. So Watson couldn't replace me. But was Watson artificial intelligence?
1: You can make an argument that it was. I mean, Watson is very good at pattern recognition and finding the answer to very specific queries. In a sense, yes, it has a lot of the technologies that we think of and are currently using right now that we would term as artificial intelligence. But it's not a a, a general artificial intelligence uh, like we would think of for like a robot that uh, is able to experience emotions and the other thing. It's a very narrow intelligence. You give it a specific task that does that task very well. Beyond that, you can't really rely on it to to do something brand new that has not been trained on.
0: Great. I guess one of the questions I would have, we've talked a lot about what artificial intelligence is what it can do, what it is doing, what it might do in the future. And one of the things that I'm most involved in now is education regarding genomics. And we've now sequenced the whole human genome and I've been involved with Dr. Lazaridis's tapestry project which is looking at sequencing whole genomes from people here in Rochester and across the enterprise. But the one thing that is doing, of course, is generating huge amounts of information, more information than we know what to do with. So I'd ask each of you in turn to sort of make a comment maybe about how may AI help us more globally with management of genomic information as we get it, and how would you foresee this? And I know it's a little bit, perhaps out of maybe your area of expertise, but given what you know about AI and data management, that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about the human genome in in an inordinate amount of data and variants, or I guess we can't call them mutations anymore, but they're all variants. And alleles and multiple alleles, and how might you see AI helping us to solve diseases or identify diseases? And with that, Chris, why don't you first make some comments on how you see AI maybe helping us with genetics?
1: When uh, when I think of what artificial intelligence could be applied for in this type of situation, is really two uh, in general situations. One, let's say if you're studying a disease of interest and you have a number of patients who have had this type of genetic testing done and going to try to find out if there are any specific uh, SNPs or uh, micro variations that might be in common that could then explain certain phenotypes that you're seeing and then lead to potential uh, research for, on therapeutics or other diagnostics for that. And so that's one kind of very broad area that I think can be useful if you know what you're looking for. On the other side of things, uh, there's a lot of these types of studies that will have different variants that you're really not sure what, uh, what it is that those necessarily mean. If you end up with a cluster of patients that have similar characteristics or phenotypes based on some combination of these, I think AI can actually be very helpful with what's called clustering, where you're able to identify different groups of patients that because they're, they share some specific genetic similarities might uh, respond uh, similarly to uh, a certain class of medication or might be more prone to getting a specific diagnosis. And part of that exploratory analysis, when you look at these large data sets, I think those are really the two areas where uh, I think that using AI for a lot of this really uh, undifferentiated uh, genetic data is gonna be very helpful.
0: Great, thank you. Brad, comments about what you see?
2: Yeah, so you know, Back when I went to medical school, and, and I think you kind of know when that was, you know, we, we were at Mendelian genetics, essentially, right? Dominant and recessive, and that's all there is to it. Obviously, genomics, we know now, is much more complex than that. And I think that one of the things that I find interesting is the cases where we get our predictions wrong. And I should air quote that, because about half the time, we probably are actually wrong but half the time the patients behave in a way that we maybe got it right. And so it's that genomic-phenomic disconnect that I think is really interesting, right? And, and we know that there are multiple ways that that disconnection can occur, right? There may be other genes that are impacting it. It may be something about the host physiologic milieu that moderate what that geno- what the genome should be expressing. But I think that that disconnection is where, again, there's an opportunity for us to learn. Because if it was only about genomics, we should have either 100% or 0% success with some of the genetic-based treatments. And, and that's not how it works, is it? It's usually some percentage. And so if we can start to understand, as Chris mentioned, you know, there are these clusters or there are these patterns. and if, And if we can start to tease those out, That's where we usually will learn something about, gee, you know, 90% of the time when the genes are this, the patient will behave this way. But in this 10%, they go this way. Well, why is that? And that can lead to further understanding of exactly how maybe upstream or downstream steps occur relative to that gene. So I think that there's a lot of opportunity for us to explore that disconnect between the the genotype and the phenotype. And and AI is all about patterns. And so if you can see patterns where it fits and then patterns where it doesn't fit, that's gonna be really valuable for us to advancing science.
0: That's a fascinating thought. As you've been speaking, as both of you have been speaking, I've been pondering, I mean, the whole concept of penetrance, you know, if we're gonna speak in genomic terms, no one's ever explained that. So what Chris doesn't know is Brad and I went to medical school together. And so we uh, are compadres and it was smooth and wrinkled peas and they're still smooth and wrinkled peas, but now there's different colored peas and everything else. But no one's ever explained penetrance. You get the gene, you get the gene, but your phenotype's different. But nobody's ever explained that. What is it that affects whether or not you express the phenotype that you're supposed to? And I'm fond of talking with Dick Winchelbaum, perhaps the recognized father of pharmacogenomics, to say I I tease him a lot and um, because he was uh, one of my mentors in during my pharmacology PhD and I say, Dick, you know, someday we're going to look back at all those idiosyncratic drug reactions and go, ah, it's pharmacogenomics the whole time. We just didn't know it. And I think there is some time where we will look back on much of what we're seeing now. And I think with the power that we will be able to have as we learn about the appropriate use of AI as a tool in clinical medicine and with the research that's being done to to start to sort of carve out and explore what are these differences we see. It's a very exciting time to be part of medicine as these tools have come out. Our time is drawing to a close. And I guess I'd invite each of you to sort of have a few parting comments about what do you want our audience to know about AI? Its current role, its goal, What do you want them to take home from our podcast today? And Chris, I started with you. I'll let you start out the end.
1: What I would say with uh, things to take away from this, AI is new, it's not scary, and it's not going to take your job. It's more likely to help what you do on a daily basis than it is anything else. A lot has changed in the last five years, and looking forward even one to two years, a lot more is going to change. And so just uh, keeping up with everything is going to be a task, but I really do think there's a lot of opportunity to really change the way we practice medicine on both a personal level as well as a population health level. And it's going to be really exciting to be a part of it over the next uh, 5, 10 years.
0: Thank you, Chris. Brad.
2: To take it not so directly into medicine, Spider-Man said that with great power comes great responsibility. That is also extremely true in the case of AI, particularly until we understand it well. And you know, another writer, uh, Arthur C. Clarke, said that any sufficiently advanced technology appears like magic, right? And and to a lot of people, AI looks like magic. And while there are a lot of engineers that can understand how an AI was trained, how it works is still magical. And so we have to be very careful to make sure we understand that. And there's something called technological bias that more or less says, If the technology tells me this, it must be true. And this is why people who follow their GPS drive into rivers, right? We have to always question, you know, how did it come to that decision? And does that make sense? And so AI can be extremely useful for us to find things that we maybe didn't expect. And that's great. And it can help us automate things and improve efficiency. And that's great. But we always have to make sure that there's a human in the loop that says, does this make sense for at least the first couple million it tries, right? The, the other thing is that we're finding that there is an awful lot of training specific to a population. So for instance, one of the, the big vendors of EMRs has a tool for detecting sepsis. And they said, you know, we've trained it on populations of, across the U.S., but before you put it into practice, train it on your data for six months, and then retrain it every six months. Well, that tells you just how tuned to very subtle signals those AI tools are. And so again, that that means it can be extremely powerful, but we really have to be very careful with how we apply it and make sure it makes sense before we drive off into the river, you know, in, in a medical sense. That's probably the main thing I would encourage people to do is that Yes, it is complex to understand, but it's critical that we understand as much of AI as possible, in particular, to understand how it can fail. And I think that that's one of the big things that I want the, the audience to, to think about.
0: Well, thank you. And I, and I have to tell you a personal anecdote after you use the example of a GPS. I was coming home in a snowstorm from Duluth, Minnesota, to my cabin up north, and I I programmed my GPS, I was coming a different way for the shortest distance. It took me on deserted single track roads in a snowstorm rather than the normal highways. It took me two hours instead of 30 minutes, but I followed my GPS because it was the shortest distance. So touche to beware, uh, buyer beware, user beware. With that, I'd like to thank you both We've been talking about predicting the future. What role is artificial intelligence playing today? And what can we expect in the future? Today, my guests have been Dr. Chris Aukri, Assistant Professor of Medicine from the Division of General Internal Medicine, and Dr. Bradley Erickson, Professor of Radiology. Thank you both very much for this very enlightening and interesting podcast. If you have enjoyed the Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, Please subscribe, have a wonderful day.